While we're preparing for season two, we're also having conversations with dancers who move and inspire us. You can catch all of the interviews from this season, as well as binge on season one on offthebeat.dance or wherever you find your podcasts. Off the Beat is a passion project, and we really need your help to make this podcast a long-term and sustainable venture. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash offthebeatdance so that we can continue to bring you more content. And together, we can create a new dance future, one beat at a time. We're going to jump back into our conversation with Brinda Guha. If you missed the first part of the conversation, which we released in our last episode, pause go back and listen to it and we'll pick up right where it leaves off we started to talk about the next generation and leaning into this idea of making sure that we create space for them and their awareness of social justice issues, for example, aware of leaning into their multiple identities and their intersectionality of their multiple identities. Where do you see dance going the next five years? That's tough. I'll tell you something. Being able to be civically engaged is different than being a social justice choreographer. I am not a social justice choreographer, but I am civically engaged. And I think that delineation is important. I say that for multiple reasons. There are social justice choreographers that are using the movement to power people towards actionable change. And then there are folks like me who are exploring concepts of humanity in the art that is still in service of pushing the art forward aesthetically, rhythmically, in a storytelling way, in a community building way, in a cultural way. But there are also bodies on the line dancing. There's war dance happening. There are people taking to streets with dance There are people changing policy with dance. And so it's very important to create that delineation. I mean, for us South Asians, a very, very powerful elder of ours and legacy of contemporary Indian and their version of contemporary Indian is Ananya Chatterjee in Minnesota. She says the work is people powered dances of transformation. And this was part of a ongoing experiment of creating a dance form very intentionally that incorporated vinyasa yoga, chow dancing, and odyssey. And really intentionally bringing these elements together, codifying something new, and then bringing this work onto bodies that will then make actionable change. That's social justice choreography. And for me, that is so important. And then the work that we do in a civically engaged way is also incredibly important too, because my work is focused on in the performing arts, how do I build community? In the performing arts, how do I make sure that all of these performers, all of these choreographers, all of these artists are held accountable and uplifted while they are creating this work to give this work more meaning, right? Because just producing the work is not enough. Our humanity has to be centered in this and we can't do that without community, especially as brown skin folks. We cannot be without community here. 
At least that's what I believe. I don't want to be tokenized in my existence. I want to be amongst my people while I'm doing this work and uplifted and challenged by my people because they understand what I'm going for. That's the responsibility that we kind of hold. And so to answer the question, I would say in the next five, 10 years, we're going to see a huge shift in young dancers understanding who they are. This identity crisis that we had in like chapters of our lives being second generation people, I'm telling you, they're either done with it or don't even have it. I have teenagers who are so secure. They're like, Mindy Kaling, why are you writing these characters like we're ashamed of ourselves? We're not ashamed of ourselves. That awkward phase in school, that was real. That was a real thing for us. Oh my gosh, yeah. And some of my students date. Yeah. Like they openly date. And I'm like, wait, what? Yes, and there's young brown students who are like, that doesn't represent me. Right. And so we're talking about an awareness and a consciousness of people's identities that we should not be projecting our experience onto them because they're having it at a different pace than us. And so I don't know what the reasons for that are. I'm sure there are many technology amongst other things, but also just their own embodied knowledge of who they are is coming sooner. That's what I'm seeing. They care about the planet. They care about community earlier. They're not so ashamed that they have a little mustache and they have dark skin. They're not worried about it. You know, they think it's fly. They think it's feminist. You know what I mean? I'm talking about how do we then serve them? And those are questions that I'm constantly asking myself. And then also, in what ways do they need to humble themselves and understand also the knowledge that came before them? Because that was also infrastructure. That's infrastructure that their privilege might not allow them to see, like the building blocks of this stuff. The craft, the amount of time it takes to create craft. For That's that. exactly right. And that legacy building is important. And we're in this really neat position where we can be the bridge builders. My student can make sure that they see me go, hey, Ma, I don't know the answer to this question. What do you think? They can see me go to my mom and ask. That's important. Or I can say, let me go ask my Manipuri teacher and come back to you because I'm actually not sure. And I need to know the answer to that too. And to understand that we are still looking to our elders to help guide us while we are transforming the path with them. It's a really interesting time. And I'm excited about the confidence that young people have. What I'm not too excited about is how easy they think this shit is because it's not, you know? It is not. <laughs> it is not. And they think they can become a professional dancer in two seconds. And I'm here to tell you that's not going to work out. This is a much cited example from social media. Island boy, island boy, that nonsense, right? They recently had a performance in Miami where they were literally booed off the stage because they can't do anything but island boy, island boy, which is a two minute clip. How do you hold yourself to a standard of performance that was set by our predecessor generation and still embodied by us to an extent of being able to perform, like for a soloist, for example, a performance of at least a half an hour's length, not a snippet on YouTube. You know what I mean? And so I kind of am in this conflicted zone where I love social media because it democratized space. That was touched upon in previous episodes of off-season chats. But the double-edged sword to it is that it leads to a lot of copycatting and trends and biting off of what's on TikTok and all that. But it also kind of gives rise to this like snippet culture where you have to like sort of shrink down everything into a minute clip. 
the whole expansive world of art and craft and world building that happens through art in a minute clip. And that's kind of what concerns me as somebody who spent much of their adult life prior to pandemic in live performance, real world experience in real world versus virtual world experience. So I don't exactly know what that entails in virtual, like metaverse is coming. What happens to dance in the metaverse? Yeah, these are big questions. I mean, I have no idea. We're watching this unfold with our eyes wide open, like what's going to happen next? Like I thought I was technologically pretty sound. And then every six weeks, I realized like I'm behind on something, you know, like there's a new thing out and I have to learn that now, you know, I share those concerns. I have no answers. But I will say this. I'm always looking for like, what is one tangible thing we can walk away with? It is always the hope lies in the work ethic. The product is, let's say, a 30 minute piece, right? Or a 20 minute solo, right? Or something like that. And I guess a classical dance context, right? But what's the real lesson? The real lesson is in the work ethic and the consistency that's required to build a 20 minute piece. That is something that we still have control over. Like that is something that we can still instill in our students that like, we're going to do a sexy little one minute TikTok right now, but that's after your 90 minute class. Cause you still have another, you know, Varnum to learn, you know, you still have another, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like the work ethic does not need to be sacrificed because of TikTok. We can make sure that we're understanding, that we're participating in the community. This is the community building aspect, right? We can participate in all, we can make space for all of that without taking away the contract that we all signed, that we were going to come here and do our best to learn as much of this art form as we can from this person. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I think it's possible to hold both when we're talking about economy and we're talking about business and we're talking about the survival of art and we're talking about the survival of our institutions and the survival of our organizations and our schools, listen, that's a different conversation because we have to see how much of this work is commercially available, how much of this work is reaching people when there's algorithms. We Who knows? That's a different conversation. And I'm very curious about those answers because it's scary. We're already having to explain to everybody what it is that we do. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> to have to now do it in 30 seconds is just like plain annoying. You know, like, like yes. <laughs> so it's like, it's all, you're just like shortening it and shortening it and shortening it. And we're like, oh my God, you already don't know what this is. But the other side of me is also eager mm. to look at our community and to look at our folks and to empower us to not have to like be on your lecture demonstration ride every time you hit the stage. Stop catering also to white folks when you're doing your work. Sometimes that embodied knowledge, that language in our body that speaks can be enough. I really believe that. I really believe that we don't need to go up there and we don't need to say a bowl is a sequence of sounds that comes like we don't need to always do that. We don't need to always tokenize ourselves in the spaces where we were hired to do our work. You know what I mean? And so sometimes standing in that grounded confidence of what it is that we do can also flip the narrative on its head a little bit and give the next generation some kind of stability and understanding. You don't need to prove this to anyone. You don't need to explain this to everyone. You know, I'm really kind of over 
the classical performances were like the first on that day. Yes, the first nine minutes were like two cows came together on a row. Uh, yeah, like I know. no, just dance the piece, just dance the piece, and people who really care are going to do the research, and you're going to provide the resources, and they're going to do the research, and they're going to ask you important questions, and we're going to do it that way in an exchange. We're going to do it in circle in a community. We're not going to do it where I dance on stage and serve you with knowledge that you should want to attain on your own too, right? And so that kind of grounded confidence is something that I'm looking forward to moving forward as well. Like how do we stop catering, over explaining what it is that we do when there are so many of us that understand what we're watching? And not only that, we have access to the internet now that we didn't have, say, 15 or 20 years ago, where all you can do is Google bowl. Exactly. What's a bowl? I think it changes how we preserve the form. Imagine a history of, no, not a history, a catalog of performances where you are setting the stage and explaining to everybody what it is you're about to perform. How does that creep into our curriculum? How does that creep into our repertoire? Everything starts to become a lecture demonstration. Everything starts to become from this framework that nobody understands what the hell is going on. And so now I'm centering their experience when they don't even know what they're watching versus my embodied knowledge of what this emotionality is in my body. I am no longer centering the correct thing. You know, if after a period of time, of course, there are certain situations where electro demonstration is appropriate, but I'm saying the way we perform these days, a lot of times I'm seeing folks up there really over explaining what they do. And that's the only performance in the bill of the night where that's happening is in the South Asian piece. They got to tell us everything that they're doing because they're so afraid of not being understood. And to me, what that tells me is that you don't have confidence right now in what it is that you do. You don't need to explain yourself to anybody. When I'm watching a West African dance, no one's explaining to me what this is about. If I care enough at the Q&A, I will ask, this felt like a ritualistic piece, was it? Was this a harvest piece? Was this a rain piece? I can ask those questions because I care enough. I'm not waiting for someone to serve me with that information. So we need to stop doing that. That's part of how we move forward. We need to focus on the work, not on how it's perceived all the time. And I think that's such a different approach than how I saw it growing up, right? You have to compare and there's a way you speak about it. And I think the other thing that it unconsciously does is it narrows what we present But as you our know form. what's interesting? When they do that, when they do those explanations in India, for example, in a traditional space, when they do that, there is a purpose. There is a purpose for that. We use those muscles and we bring that over here on the boat, on the immigration story. We bring that over here. And now it becomes this like, let me prove myself to you. It stops being about the repertoire work where you actually you actually say the story and then perform the story. That's repertoire work. We understand why people are doing that. We understand that I want you to hear me articulate these words. I want you to see this nice rhythm land on the sum with like sat in a satisfactory way. And then I'm going to back up and I'm going to show you the dance versus taking those principles, going on stage and going, 
Now I will recite a rhythmic composition, and then after three cycles of sixteen, it will magically land on one. <laughs> like that's different. That's craft. You should not have to sit there and explain your craft while you're being hired to present your craft. And it also just leads to a narrowing because I've seen the conversations behind the scenes, right? Oh, we have to do like a Shiva piece that's energetic because they'll get that. But like an Abhinaya piece that's of this slice of the thing, that might be too esoteric. It sort of leads to that sort of self-censorship because we feel like if we can't explain it in a way that our audience can grasp it, then it's not worthy of being presented in this space. And what does that tell us about our need to be understood? And what does it lead to? Erasure. It leads to erasure, exactly. Because as brown people in this country, when we are watching performances and we have no idea what the F is going on, it doesn't mean that we don't appreciate what it is or open up an opportunity for us to find out more. Other people can do that for our work too. You know what I mean? I sit there and I have no idea what I just saw, but I go home and I do the research. And then I connect the dots. And I know that on a spiritual level, I connected to something. I know that it spoke to me. But if I'm so concerned with how I'm perceived, then I question where all the energy is going while making that piece. You know what's interesting, Brenda? We had an episode in our first season of Off the Beat where we talked about text a lot. And we talk about this esoteric text, which centers the dancer's experiences in art versus a lot of the other texts, which talk about the audience's perception or rasa in rasa theory, right? It's always like, how is the audience going to perceive it? Why is the audience going to perceive it? If you do X, Y, and Z, the audience is going to perceive this, you know? But very few really talk about the interior life of a dancer, which I think an audience finds compelling. A lot of the best dance performances that I've seen have been, as you said, not necessarily with explanation, but just the work and the way the dancer is in that moment. And also allowing our multiplicity to exist, that this could actually be sad and resentful and jealous and rageful all at once. Because guess what? The literature says that the character went through all of that emotion. And so maybe there's space to actually feel all of those things. Maybe it's many things. Maybe it's yes and. It's this and it's also this and it's also this and it's also this. And it's okay for the community to see the work and maybe grab one or two of them and not the full thing and think about what else was in that charged in that performance. Like that's possible. You know, from a logistical point of view, when there's an over explanation, there's no surprise left in the performance. Right, exactly. That's another thing. Like you just gave away the punchline. What's left to see now? And one thing I want to make sure that I mention as a cast privilege person, I'm inheriting certain advantages of deciding, you know, at least in my lineage, of deciding what is kept and what is aesthetically pleasing and what is allowed. I'm inheriting that in a way where folks who are not caste privileged do not get the opportunity for many reasons, but the main reason being that the people who ended up being the gatekeepers of the form are the people who appropriated the form away from the originators of the form. And so now, not only do they not get to show their multiplicity, not only do they not get to practice the form, but they also don't get to show their multiplicity in the form when they're the one who birthed the forms, right? And so we're talking about preservation of art, sure, 
but I'm also coming from a really privileged standpoint about what I think classical dance looks like based on what I inherited the aesthetics should be and what parts of history do we hold on to, right? And so it's my job as a caste privileged person to go in and see how these classical forms were appropriated from folk, from community dances, from regional forms. You know, it's my work. I have to go and do that work. I have to figure out, is this wrong to do this? Or can I frame this as a choice that was made? I can tell my students that one of the eight styles of classical Indian dance, what is recognized as classical Indian dance is Manipuri. I can just say it. It's Manipuri. It comes from Northeast India. It looks like this. Boom. Classical. Done. Don't ask questions. Done. Over. I can frame it that way. Or I can also say that one of a newer form of classical Indian dance is also Kshatriya, which is near, geographically near where Manipuri is. And then one of the folk forms that's celebrated there is Bihu. And Bihu is considered a folk form, but Manipuri is considered a classical form. And it's important for us as caste privileged folks in this room to actually learn what these forms are and what purpose they serve, right? So these are things that we have access to and that we have to make time and space for so that we are not perpetuating and regurgitating just what we were taught, but one step further. I know in Bharatanatyam, it's a huge conversation right now. Up until recently, there was no public discourse about it. Even when I was living in India, these were questions that I was thinking about because I was doing my master's in Bharatanatyam and this kind of literature came up, the anti-Devadasi, anti-Notch acts and all that came up. There was a real reckoning that was starting to happen, like what does it mean to be caste privileged, but also to be male? And so there's a lot of exceptionalism made to male dancers because we're already outside the norm because we weren't necessarily performers. It wasn't embodied in performance on our bodies. So automatically there's a queerness to it. But then that's lazy. That's a lazy conclusion to draw upon saying like, oh, yeah, I'm excused from this conversation. But my ancestors were patrons of the art, too. And also coming to terms with what the younger generation are viewing this in terms of language that they know about. So you get students who are asking questions about this. But if we haven't done the work of doing the research, having the difficult conversations, learning to reassess our understanding of classical dance and classicalness, we can't say we're going to do it in five years. The next generation is already asking questions. And also our immediate elders are also asking questions. Academics are asking questions. So it's no longer the pink elephant in the room. And how do we reckon with this? That's also where the future of dance lies. What does repertoire look like when we quote unquote decolonize? When we quote unquote, what's the analogous term for casteism? Because I've only seen decolonize Bharatanatyam, maybe decast. I don't know if that's the right word. But what does that future look like in repertoire? For me, for example, I also envision creating new pieces. Instead of queering existing pieces in the repertoire, which are clearly heteronormative, especially in the gendered language that they use, why aren't we creating new pieces about different types of love, especially the ones that are explicitly queer? Some languages, for example, like Tamar, are starting to adapt gender-neutral language or language that expresses the multiplicity and the spectrum of gender expression. How do we include such inclusivity in the dance repertoire? That takes a lot of work. I think it's also a multi-pronged process, right? Like, I think it has to be like the way activism is. 
you need the artists, you need them to raise the consciousness of the people, you need the academics, you need the people who will conceptually theorize it, you will need the activists, you will need the people putting their body on the line, uh, the healers, the people who care for the wounded, you need multiple prongs to move anything forward. You're right, Kieran. Like, it's not going to be solved in some, like, five years. We can't answer these questions as a finite answer because the questions are coming from everywhere. And we are evolving as people while we're in the work. So it's like, okay, we have to make space for this thing, but we also have to deconstruct if this thing makes sense. We have to think, okay, the thing that we're comparing it to, which is the original thing that we thought it was, did that even make sense? And was that politicized before it reached us? Did we learn the right thing? And then based on what we learned, what are we sending out? And then what are we still exploring? What still needs about 10 years in the body? Like we got to do a lot of work. And the best way to do that is to be super honest at all times when we don't know the answer to something, ask more questions. And actively galvanize and build community because we need accountability to have these conversations. We cannot be having these conversations in a silo with Wikipedia. It's not going to get solved. We need to be in community. We need to check each other as we're having these conversations. And we need more gathering time. We need more gathering time in this space to actually be able to pull out, tease out what is the truth today that we are searching for. Right. And what can we all get behind? We know that we all want to preserve this thing, but we know that this thing is problematic. Okay, cool. And then you set action items and you move on, but you cannot do that by yourself. You have to be in community for that. And I really hope that our generation, and I think we're doing pretty good. I think we're doing pretty good, but I think I really hope that we really hone in on this idea that we need each other. We really need each other to do this work because this is some fancy ass ancient shit. <laughs> Listen, this is. And for us to sit here and think like we can just like figure it out on a Thursday, like it's not going to work. Like we need to be in community. We need to check each other. We need to question each other. We need pillars of our community like Nrita Palai asking questions like, where are you even coming from with this? And why aren't you centering the voices of non-caste privileged people? We need people to just push back, push back, push back, push back. And we need to be resilient enough to receive it. And we also need to be resilient enough to have a grounded confidence about the embodied knowledge that we did cultivate, that we did work for, because that also exists. Absolutely agree. And I think also be confident in our art, given that this art has existed for eons, ages, whatever, right, in various forms. If it's lived this long, it's going to live beyond us. So it will survive these conversations. It will be better for this work. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's living and breathing. And we are teeny tiny parts. And what we're pushing and doing is not going to destroy it. It's going to look different, but it'll be better because we're asking it to answer to these times. And these are hard times. Right. right? Very hard. And that's why this is important to us. So what is the best advice you've received during your dance journey? Ooh, the best advice that I received during my dance journey. Oh, that's tough. There's too much. This is a little basic, but it's kind of not if you think about it, but it sounds a little basic. The best advice I ever got was from Janechi Silva, 
who is an Afro-Brazilian and samba reggae dance teacher. And she taught us to never mark your arms. So when you're reviewing something, we kind of like, okay, and then we do this, and then we do this, and then we do this. And because this is a podcast, I'll explain what I'm doing. I'm just like lightly moving my arms around because I'm like going through it in my head and not fully using my extension to actually like do it. The best advice I ever received was from her when she told me, never mark your arms. I learned that one the hard way. (laughs) But she said it to me in a way, and it was interesting because it was out of the context of Indian dance. What I was doing was just going over the steps to make sure that I remembered them. I think I was like 18 or 19. What she explained to me was that my body is physically learning how to do it half-ass. My body is learning that. Even if in my head I know I'm supposed to have like, let's say like a straight arm or like send it back behind my body. Because I've done it like this, I've undone that knowledge by reviewing it halfway. So even if I'm not doing the full jumping and the full athleticism behind the review, the arms should never be marked. That's the best advice I ever received in my life and I never forgot it. I love it. Another question that we wanted to ask you, because this is a podcast and you are an active performer, curator, choreographer. Are there any projects that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes, absolutely. So Souls of Duende, my trio that we talked about earlier, we are a collective of a tap dancer and a flamenco dancer and a Kathak dancer. And in the context of percussive dance, we communicate through music, through rhythm, through our storytelling that's embodied in our rhythm and our footwork. And so it's really fun work to understand how rhythms communicate in this way without spoken language, but through rhythmic language, through percussion. And we have a big show coming up. We were the spotlight artists at Gibney in 2019. Then we were about to present and the pandemic happened and then it got pushed to 21 and then it got pushed to 22. So we are the spotlight artists of 2019 presenting in 2022. And we have changed as people in these last two years. All of us have, right? And so our show has really evolved and changed. And we have three fabulous men joining us, musicians, live musicians, Okai Music on Djembe, Ryan Stanberry on trumpet, and Raginder on uh, violin. So with all these kind of soundscapes, we are creating a full-length show. It'll be June 16th, 17th, and 18th, 2022, here in New York City at Gibney, which is 280 Broadway in their theater. And it's going to be a really, really beautiful soundscape of a show. And it'll be an exploration of music. Our work in Souls is fun and interesting because we are the dancers and we are also the musicians. We make the soundscape of what we're dancing to. So everything means a lot. Like when Ariel, the flamenco dancer, says a song from her childhood, toma que toma que toma, toma que toma que toma. And I hear, datina natina dina, datina natina dina. You know, like we are connected in that way, right? Or when you hear, you think the clave, you think... Celia Cruz, you think, you know, you think music and a lot of us have access to this music by being American, by growing up here. You know, I grew up with Latinx communities and I know the clave since I was a little kid. Right. So then you're dancing with someone with tap shoes on doing the clave because she's, you know, that's her embodied knowledge. And these are relationships and communications that we're having with each other through sound without having to explain it. 
the history that's involved in a clave rhythm, the history that's involved in like a complicated chaptal. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot happening there. And so we're excited to not only put it together in a show, but to also share it with musicians who will then expound upon that idea using melodic and percussive instruments as well. So it's a treat. And I hope people come out June 16th through 18th at Kibney. Are you also doing a show for Jacob's Pillow? Yes, I am. I don't know if the press release went out. So everyone listening, you get a sneak peek. But yes, I think it was announced, actually. We're, this is our first time at Jacob's Pillow this summer. Souls of Duende was invited. We're very excited. That was a goal of ours when we started five years ago. And the fact that it's happening is really exciting. And the opening performance for our night is Freedom Dabka Group. Uh, Palestinian folk dance. And so we're really excited to be on the bill with them. It's going to be a really energizing night. I'm excited. Fabulous. Fabulous. And that one's on August 5th, if I'm not mistaken, at Jacob's Pillow. Great. So we thank you so much for sharing your projects that are coming up. We wanted to shift focus now to our surprise section of some rapid fire questions just to cap off the interview that has been just wonderfully expansive and just extremely insightful, especially with some of the greater questions that I think are facing South Asian dance at large. So, Amea, take it away. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I just want to say that out loud. No, it'll be light. It'll be fun. Oh, no. Okay. What's your theme song? Pretty much the Jeopardy music goes on in my mind a lot while I'm working. So let's let's go ahead and say figuratively the Jeopardy theme song because I'm always in a space of curiosity and questioning what the heck is going on. So let's say that. (laughs) Next question. Fill in the blank. If I could collaborate with anybody, dead or alive, I would choose blank. Akram Khan. Yes, 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 yes. I have been wanting to pick his brain for a long time. I've only met him once, randomly in Chennai. It was pouring rain and we were both stuck in the same auditorium after he performed. And we spoke for about 15 or 20 minutes. If you could only perform one piece for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Mm, that's rude. <laughs> that is so mean. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say there's this tarana that's in my repertoire that I love. It's short. It's five minutes. I love taranas. It's not narrative based. It's technique based. But there is something really beautiful about allowing the dance to unfold musically. I always have fun dancing a tarana. So... I would say a tarana. Train or plane to a performance? Oh, plane, for sure. To be honest, this question was also kind of framed in mind with some of our interviewees who were in India. Oh, I see. Because going on train in India is quite an adventure. It sure is. It sure is. But business class is my dream. (laughs) To go to a performance in business class. Absolutely. No, I want a plane ticket. That's for sure going in the contract. (laughs) (laughs) what's your favorite meal after a performance that is so rude too it really just depends like are we in brooklyn are we in queens like where are we at girl you're thinking too much okay fine 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 after a performance i really want tacos 
I appreciate that. I feel that. You appreciate that, right? Yes. Tacos are life. Tacos are life, if you think about it. And also, it's really kind of hard to get it really wrong. (laughs) Well, I mean, in the sense, like, painfully wrong. It's hard to get it painfully wrong. And the elements are, like, really satisfactory. You know what I mean? Like, all of the elements, like, I just want a chip. I want a crunch. I want a meat. I want a vegetable. I want spice. And cheese. I want cheese. I want Jarito's tamarind flavor. You see what I'm saying? Like, I want those flavors near me after a performance. I think the summer before my senior year, I spent in India for a few weeks. And it was my first time going back to India after we moved away. Um, And I was there for dance. And one of the girls was there with me. And she was, you know, born in the U.S. And she was traveling there for the dance for the first time. And we would just be up in the middle of the night. It was monsoon season talking about tacos. (laughs) Because <laughs> it was important and we couldn't get any. <laughs> it's really important to talk about tacos. I really think it is an important part of our lives and we should talk about it more often. So I agree. <laughs> to this day, we get back together. We've been friends for, I mean, I met her when I was in middle school. We get together, we get tacos. Absolutely. And it's also a whole different experience you're having if it's like fish versus if it's like me versus if it's just, you know, like you're just having your... Yeah, we can clearly talk about this as well, but we can also move on if you'd like. (laughs) What is one thing people get wrong about you? Ooh, (laughs) where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) See, see, see. I would say, I know I'm thinking too hard. I'm overthinking these questions too much. I can feel myself. Okay, what does something that people get wrong about me? People think that I am pretty like strong-willed, level-headed. People think that I like got all my shit together. And the truth is I'm an emotional nightmare half the time. (laughs) And I do therapy now and I'm very sensitive. Let me be more specific. People think I'm not as sensitive as I am. I'm extremely sensitive. Yeah, I'm working on it. I'm working on the tools to like get myself through a situation, even if I'm having a sensitive reaction to it, right? Like understanding why the sensitivity exists. I'm working on it. But I think people think they can get away with a lot of things in my presence, but I'm actually absorbing all of it in a really sensitive way. And then that gives me the blues later, you know, because I have to process it later. I don't think people know that about me. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Because that's something that I really didn't know about you. What does your best friend tease you about? Ooh, my friends are the worst. They tease me about my type A-ness organizationally. Paperwork, you know, or splitting the bill at dinner. Or like, you know, they're like, Brenda, you got this. Oh, Brenda, did you make a list? Do you like your list? Is everything off your list checked off your list? Are you okay? Like they make fun of my obsession with keeping things in line in terms of like, administratively because I can't really think unless it's all like filed away somewhere you know what's the best thing that's happened in the past week Ooh, that's a good one I said we thought about these questions (laughs) I like that question I like that question the best thing that happened in the last week was that my trio had a fantastic result not the easiest process but a great result of a marketing shoot for this show in June and receiving the photos and being so excited about the spirit and the energy being seen 
that we wanted to portray in this photo shoot with a photographer that's really well known that we didn't know if was, you know, was going to say yes. And all the things that we were like excited about, like the nitty gritty details. And you just like never know how something's going to come out. And when it's something that you treasure and they came out so lovely and they totally captured our spirit. So that's really exciting. And I just want to shout out my girlfriend. Stacy is my girlfriend and she's wonderful and she works really, really hard. And she is currently, you know, working on school and learning new skills and achieving new goals. And every week she achieves new goals. And so it's really cool to watch her challenge herself and win every week. That's a beautiful answer and a beautiful shout out to Stacy, who I also know. For our listeners, Brenda and Stacy actually performed together in a duet in a festival that I had curated, I think it was back in 2019, called Tight Slap. And it was just wonderful to see two people who are in love performing together. That kind of energy you can't replicate anywhere else. Thought I would just share that. And the last question that we have is, in a tradition for Off the Beat, we have a call to action to our listeners. You had mentioned several calls to actions throughout the conversation that are so extremely important. Call to action is make sure you are registered to vote for the midterms. Excellent. And then go and vote for the midterms. Because I think a lot of people think that the main election where we just elect the president is important. I'm like, it is, but all the policies happen in the midterm elections or in the municipal elections as well, right? That's right. And if there's any, we all need to do better at this, but if there's any call to action at, at all in terms of voting, it's understanding your municipality and your community and your city first, and then just making sure that you're a data point. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe that your vote doesn't count. It absolutely does. And we cannot be so obsessed with ourselves that we're sitting here talking about classical dance and preserving culture and then not participate in the democracy of the municipalities in which we occupy space. So I say we vote. Wherever you are in the world. Wherever you are in the world, if you can vote, participate. Literally vote. But figuratively participate in the ecology in which you live in. Yes, show up. And even if it doesn't go your way, keep showing up. It takes time. You have to keep showing up. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brenda. It's been such a pleasure to have you on Off the Beat. And what a way to end our first off-season chat series. We just covered such a wide range of topics with you, all of which I think have one thing in common, the call to action being to participate, to community build, and to be an active part of change, meaning show up, be present, but also be in touch with humanity within yourself and without in your environment. Thank you. Thank you both so much for this opportunity. This was such a nice conversation. And I really, really appreciate the invitation. And I love what y'all are doing. And I support you. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode of Off Season Chats would not have been possible without the support and encouragement of our amazing listeners and the following people. We edit podcasts for audio engineering, Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo, and a special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. Like what you've heard? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services, subscribe to the podcast, and tell your friends about us so that more people can find this show.
You can also join our conversation by following us on social media at, at Off the Beat Dance on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or by visiting us at www.offthebeat.dance. We'd love to hear from you. We're going to be heads down for a few weeks as we work on season two, but stay tuned. More coming soon. Off Season Chats is an Off the Beat production. Bye.